1741, the fires of the Great Awakening were sweeping their way through New England. The response of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the lives of individuals, absolutely astonishing. As thousands came to faith in Christ, as many more came to a renewed walk with the Lord. In the middle of that experience on July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon ever to be preached in the United States, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, with a title like that and the response that came that day, you would think that he preached that in a stomp-down, slobber-knocker style of preaching, but he didn't. Those who uh, reported on his style of preaching said that Jonathan Edwards was so, his eyesight was so bad that he had to hold his carefully crafted manuscript up in front of his face as he read his sermons. So if you think about what the Holy Spirit did on that day in Enfield, Connecticut, when he preached that sermon, it's absolutely remarkable. We're told that as he preached the message, the Spirit of God swept over the people so much that before he could even complete the sermon, he had to stop because of the congregation, the weeping and crying being so intense. Now, this is not the first time in the history of mankind that the Spirit of God has swept through a group of people. All we have to do is turn to Nehemiah 8, and I encourage you to do that, just to the left of the book of Psalms and book of Job. I encourage you to turn into chapter 8, because it's in chapter 8 that we read about how God did it once before with the movement of His Spirit. Last week, Jeremy introduced us to uh, Nehemiah and what he was up to. He was in Persia, Persia having conquered Babylon. He was part of the leftover exiles who were there. He was working in the king Artaxerxes' court. And he became burdened, deeply burdened by the fact that even though the temple had been rebuilt in Israel, that the wall surrounding Jerusalem were still torn down and burned down. And so he went to Artaxerxes, requested that he be allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And when he got back to Jerusalem, the scripture tells us that he rallied the people to the cause. After surveying carefully what needed to be done, he logistically organized them in a tremendous fashion and then working them through, inspiring them through great opposition that came from those who didn't want the wall rebuilt. The scripture tells us in Nehemiah 6.15 that after just 52 days, the wall was complete. Now, this was not a wall that looked like the wall around your patio at home. This was a huge wall. For those of you who have been to Jerusalem, uh, you know how large and how thick and wide this wall was. And to finish it in 52 days is a testament of the Spirit, what God's people can do in a spirit of unity when they're committed to a cause that's bigger than them because it's the cause of God. And so when the wall was rebuilt, the spiritual leader, Ezra, the 
political leader, Nehemiah, realized there was another rebuilding project that needed to be done. And that was the rebuilding of the nation of Israel spiritually. And so what we find in chapter 8 is the bringing together of the people of God for the reading of God's Word and what happened as a result. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we honor and reverence of God's Word as I read the verse, uh, first 12 verses of chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood those thirteen men. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people <clears throat> answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the 13 men listed there along with the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, do not be grieved." And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. You may be seated. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar was important because of three important celebrations that occurred. The Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And so it's not insignificant that the people of God gathered on that day. They gathered under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, who was their spiritual leader as priest and scribe. And I want you to notice that the people themselves requested that the Word of God be read to them. Some scholars believe that while they were in exile those 70 years, that the prophecy of Amos 8.11 had come true, where God had said, Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And so evidently there was a deep hunger in the hearts of the people, to hear the word of God read. And I want you to notice what unfolds. All the people, the scripture says, gathered as one man. 
This doesn't mean they gather just as one clump of people, one great group of people. But what it's saying is when they gathered, they gathered with one purpose, one heart, one spirit, one mind, one commitment to one vision, one mission, and a common trust in God and in one another. One man is what God intends for his people. And the scripture says when Ezra opened up the law, the people without prompting stood in reverence to the reading of God's word. And what what Ezra did before he read was to lead them in time of worship. The way it said in verse 6, it says he blessed the Lord, the great God. And the people broke out in a worship experience that sadly would make most Baptists uncomfortable. As Ezra read the law of Moses, his assistants explained to the people what they were hearing. And so it was just like what we're experiencing today. The reading of God's word and then someone, the Levites and these men that that stood beside him explaining to the people what the scripture meant so that they can understand it. And the scripture says that as he read the law of Moses, the people broke out and weeping and crying, evidently overwhelmed by the conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding the sin that had been exposed in their lives as they heard a fresh reading of the Word of God. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and the other leaders realizing that the people had come under conviction, they had repented in their hearts, said, now it's a time of celebration Go fix your food and celebrate before the Lord. And what occurred that day was nothing short of a massive movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it brought not a revival service, but true revival. Now, in recent days, I've had a number of people come to me from our congregation And they will say something like this, Jerry, we need a revival at Taylor's. I could not agree more. Like the Jews standing in the hot sun that day for six hours to hear the reading of God's Word. For those people seated in the congregation listening to the words of Jonathan Edwards in 1741, We need the power, the genuine power and movement of the Holy Spirit to come through our congregation and reawaken us spiritually, renew us spiritually, individually and collectively, because the Lord has opportunity to convict us of the sin that is in our congregation. Now, some in our congregation need revival due to having grown cold spiritually, due to ignorance of God's word and prayer and meaningful worship and other spiritual disciplines. There are others here in our congregation who need revival because you've strayed away from God's spiritual moorings because you're involved in open or secret sin. But what I feel God wanting me to say more than anything else today is that the reason we need revival more than anything is that most of us are blind to our own self-righteousness, which makes us believe we're better people than we really are. 
You see, self-righteousness is dangerous because it's so subtle, so seductive, so self-deceiving. And it can lead us to do some very dangerous things to ourselves and dangerous things to the body. Let me give you some suggestions as to what it can do. It can cause us to justify and rationalize and excuse our sin saying, I know God understands. Self-righteousness can cause us to become experts in pointing out specks in other people's eyes and ignoring the moat in our own. It can cause us to mistake love of self for love of God and the church. It can cause us to masquerade our selfishness and self-centeredness as spirituality. It can cause us to mistake our pride for humility. It can cause us to elevate our personal preferences and personal opinions to a standard of spirituality by which we judge other people's godliness. And most of all, it can cause us, when we say we need a revival, to really mean they need a revival, when what God wants us to hear is, I need a revival. What can we learn today from Nehemiah 8 that can help us create an environment where God can truly bring Revival to our church. First of all, we'll never experience personal revival until we become convicted of the majesty and holiness of God. Looking again at verse 6, it says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. One of the spiritual enemies of spiritual renewal is an overfamiliarity with God. By that, I mean two things. One, we become so familiar with God that it's almost like we take Him for granted. The second, what I mean is we tend to behave toward Him in an overly familiar manner, casually, informally, comfortably, such that we see God more as our big buddy than we see Him as the sovereign God of the universe. Ezra knew if they were ever going to be rebuilt as a nation spiritually, first of all, they had to come to a fresh encounter with the majesty and the holiness of God. And so he blessed the Lord, the great God. He reminded them that God is nothing close to ordinary. He reminded them that God is extraordinarily outstanding in comparison to anyone and to anything. I think also he reminded them that day of the holiness of God, reminding them that when God 70 years earlier sent them into exile, he was right to do so because of his holiness, because everything about him is pure and sinless and untainted by evil. And what we need to come to grips with today, if we haven't in recent times, because He is holy, we can be certain of four things. Number one, 
we can be certain of the fact that he has a right to be angry with us when we sin. Number two, that he will be angry with us when he sins. That he will judge us and he will discipline and even punish us if necessary. You see, the possibility for personal revival is predicated upon the fact that we come to grips with the holiness of God. I can also envision Ezra that day reminding them of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means he's above and superior to all others, supreme in power, rank, and authority. Let me put it down on the lower shelf. God is boss of everything and everyone of the whole universe. And we need a fresh reminder of what that means. But what made him boss? What made him boss is he created the earth. He owns everything in the earth. And the last time I checked, owner-operators get to do with what they own and operate anyhow they please. So we need to understand that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's not our big buddy. I can also envision Aaron in his prayer reminding them of the love of God, which showed itself in his goodness and mercy and love and grace in allowing them to come home from exile from those 70 years in Babylon. But we need to understand, besides the warm, fuzzy feelings that we get when we think about the love of God, we need to understand that God's love is a jealous love. Not an unholy jealousy like ours that's all self-centered in ourselves, but in a jealousy, a holy jealousy motivated by His desire never to share us with any false God. So God will work hard, tirelessly, to fight for us and to make that happen. But we also need to understand that God's love has an agenda. And that agenda is to continually work in us to mold and make us into the image of His Son. See, if we're ever going to experience personal revival... We need to become convinced of God's greatness, of His love, of His sovereignty, of His holiness. Only then, and then, will we position ourselves to declare Him Lord of our lives, which is absolutely essential if we're ever going to fear and revere Him as we should. You see, then and only then when we will we avoid the sin of thinking that life is all about us. The other day I was pulled up to a car at a red light and I noticed a window sticker that said, Welcome to my world. I knew what the person was trying to say and the way we use that. But the Spirit gave me a different interpretation of that message. You see... That is the worldview era that even we as Christians make, thinking that the world is all about us. What we need to come to grips with today is the 
world is all about him. So besides becoming, coming to a fresh encounter with the holiness and the majesty and the greatness of God, verses 2 through 8 also remind us we must to experience personal revival. We need to allow the Word of God to do its work in our lives. Now what happened on that day? The people listened to the Word of God not as those words and thoughts of a man named Moses about um, being a deity called God. But they knew and understood when they heard those words read, they were hearing the very words of God. And as a result of the openness that that created in their lives, the work of the Word of God was allowed to do what it does best. Listen as I read from Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, for Scripture to have an impact in our lives as a two-edged sword, we too must believe that we're hearing and reading the very words of God. For it's when we allow ourselves to look into the mirror of God's Word with an open heart, then and only then can we see ourselves as the very real sinners that we are. Number three, we'll never experience personal revival until the Holy Spirit does its work of conviction in our lives. Verse 9 says, All the people were weeping when they heard the words of the Lord. What caused them to weep? Conviction over the sins that that reading exposed. They were weeping because the Holy Spirit was doing what John 16, 8 says the Holy Spirit does. In that verse, Jesus said, He, meaning the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict us of sin, convicting us that indeed we are sinners who have wronged a holy God and we really do need and deserve punishment. He will convict us of righteousness, convicting us regarding the fact that we not only need to be made right with Him through Jesus, we therefore need to behave rightly as a result. And then He'll convict us of judgment. The fact that there is a judgment day coming, that though we may get by with our sin for a season, one day there will indeed be a payday. How do we know we've been truly convicted? We know we've been truly convicted when we truly confess and truly repent. True confession is not admitting that you've done something. It's saying the same thing about what you and I have done as God has said about what you and I have done. That it is a sin against a holy God deserving punishment. 
But true repentance. Most people think if I just say I'm sorry to God, I've repented. But what the Scripture teaches us is true repentance is being so sorry for our sin that we're willing to stop doing it and want to stop doing it and know we need to stop doing it. No revival comes without there first being conviction. No conviction comes without the Word of God. And no conviction is genuine until it leads to confession and repentance. Let me ask you a question. It's a question I've asked myself already. How long has it been, if ever, since I wept before God over my sin? The last thing I would suggest to you from this passage of Scripture, we'll never experience personal revival until we obey what He commands. I want you to notice something in verses 13 through 18. I didn't have time to read it. But what happens there, the people requested of Ezra and Nehemiah, can we come back together again on the second day? And so they brought them back together and they read God's Word and the people were there to explain it and they discovered something significant. They discovered that God had instituted a celebration called the Festival of Booths. It was designed once a year to be done so as to remind them of God's care and concern for them all those years they wandered in the wilderness. Now, what was interesting is that they are on day two of month seven, and the Festival of Booths was supposed to start on, I believe, day 15 of month seven. Now, I'll tell you what we would have done. We would have said, oh, that is too close for such a major event. So we won't do it this year, but what we need to do is organize a committee to plan for next year. What did they do? You read those verses, they immediately began to plan and to work out and celebrate it on time, the Festival of Booths. Evidence of true revival in our hearts will be our willingness to obey God as soon as we understand a given command of Scripture, especially at the point where His Spirit and His Word have convicted us. In his book, Whisper, Mark Batterson tells the time when Dr. Edwin Orr from Wheaton Bible College took a group of students in 1940 to tour London. While they were there, they visited the home of John Wesley. And they were shown two, knee, two imprints in the wood in the bedroom. And they were told that it was suspected that that's where John Wesley prayed regularly for God to break out in revival in England and around the world. When the group got back to the bus, one of the students was missing. So Dr. Orr went back into the house of John Wesley to see if the student was in there. And he went into the bedroom, and there kneeling with his knees in those imprints in the wood was a man named Billy Graham. 
These are the words of the prayer of Billy Graham that Dr. Orr heard him pray. Lord, do it again. May you and I today adopt the heart of Billy Graham in praying for God to do it again at Taylor's. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you did it <clears throat> in Jerusalem in 444 B.C. You did it in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741 A.D. With all our hearts, with all that is within us, we don't just ask you, Lord, we plead with you, we beg you, do it again in Taylor's in 2018. And we pray this in your great and mighty, sovereign, awesome name. Amen. Just like the Lord gave the people of Israel a celebration to remind them of all that he had done in those 40 years in the wilderness, He's given you and me a reminder of what he did on the cross. We call it the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper uses two elements, the bread and the juice, to remind us that Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood for us on the cross. And that only by our belief in that and trust in that can we ever have a hope of eternal life. As we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, there are some in here possibly who have yet, you've, you have not chosen to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This Lord's Supper is one thing that we do as the family of God. And so we just ask that you reverently and quietly watch and observe what we do. We welcome your questions after the service. For those of us who are believers here today, I want to read a passage of Scripture where Paul addressed the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, excuse me. He took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge 
the body unrightly or rightly. This is the word I think and believe God has given me to give to our people today. It would be far better for us to let the cup and the bread pass us by than to partake of it in an unworthy manner. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that you've given us in the bread and the cup of what it means that you died on the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, forgive us when we fuss over trivial things and forget the most important things. As we partake of the bread in just a moment, Lord, bless us. As we partake of the fruit of the vine, bless us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.